this is part two of our reflections on Advent. So um, we're reflecting on this season. We do it every year, and in a way we do it all the time because it's really the state of the Christian life. Um, we pause to remember that um, our life is caught between these two realities, this, the reality of, of, um, of joyful gratitude for what Jesus has done, what God's already done for us, and joyful anticipation of what he will do for us, what he's promised to do again, which is to make his home among us, to make his home within us. This is the, this is the, the, the gift of Christmas. And the image um, on the slide is of modern-day Bethlehem, which I think is a good disruption, perhaps, of the more sentimental um, gloss that we have over Christmas. But that's where Jesus was born, in Bethlehem. Um, it's what it looks like today. And, well, you know, here in Auckland, we might not live with people roaming around with machine guns on the street. Uh, um, we do live in a world that, that still needs God's shalom, that needs his peace to come. So another way to consider this season of Advent is to, think about, uh, is to think about Advent as a time of God's arrival, because that's actually literally what Advent means. It means arrival. <clears throat> so for us, the high point of God's arrival is in the past. Rather, It's, it's God arrived in, in, the, in the incarnation and in the birth of Jesus. And it's another interesting theological word there, incarnation, um, it, it simply means to become flesh, and we, we owe that that word to, to John and his gospel. Um, he's the one who really brought that thinking through around incarnation when he wrote, uh, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So for John, that was his big theological insight, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word, the specific word he uses there for dwelt is um, actually... Uh, it literally means to make a tent or to like pitch a tent. So, so God pitched a tent. The word became flesh and pitched a tent among us, which is, um, I think, kind of appropriate for, for our southern Christmas, don't you think? God's come camping with us. It might be the way we might translate it today. Um, and if, you know, if you're not into tenting, that's fine. Um, I know not everybody is. Uh, Eugene Peterson translates John 1.14, like this, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood, which is a, another really cool um, image, I think, of God moving into the neighborhood. I don't know if he would drive around in an RV, but maybe he would. Maybe he'd turn up one day in your neighborhood. And it's something I've been thinking about, actually. Um, what would it be like for for God to move into my neighborhood? I live in Swanson, out at the end of the Western Line, <clears throat> what would it be like if if God moved into my street? If he if he lived on my street, who would he eat with? What, what would his home be like? What would what would he? How would he interact with with his neighbours? What would God be like in Swanson? Because in a sense, this is what Advent is. It's a it's a reflection on God arriving in our world. God arriving in our neighborhood. Now, I'm guessing that if I asked for a show of hands about who's really excited about the second coming, um, you might, you know, there might be some that are enthusiastic, there might be some who are like a little bit more um, unsure, that's fine. I think the second coming has a bit of a heavy feel to it for a lot of people, um, maybe thinking about like Yeats's poem, The Second Coming, 
things fall apart, the centre cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. Not exactly encouraging images. But another way to consider the return of Christ is to consider that he is always already arriving and returning, isn't he? He's always drawing near to us. So his advent is something that we are currently experiencing. His second coming is sort of proleptically happening. It's sort of happening already in a way. Every time we gather together, we experience his second coming and we experience more and more and we wait for the full culmination of that. So one of the earliest prayers of the Christian church was this, actually an Aramaic phrase. So the early church spoke Greek, but they borrowed this phrase directly from Jesus who spoke Aramaic, and it was Maranatha, which means come Lord or come Lord Jesus. When we, when we pray uh, this prayer, Maranatha, um, we, we involve ourselves in the prayer of Jesus, we, well, in the prayer of the early church. And we actually involve ourselves in the second coming. When we pray Maranatha, we pray, come Lord Jesus, return again, come to us. So I wonder if we could practice that prayer this morning. Um, we don't normally do this kind of thing, but uh, when I say Maranatha, could you all say, come Lord Jesus? Ready? Maranatha. Amen. That was great. Hey, we can do this. <laughs> so... We'll be doing that a little bit today. Um, in, our, in our scripture reading for this week, we are offered a uh, striking series of images, and you may be familiar with this um, passage. Um, it's an a series of images of what it looks like when God makes his home among us. And here's what Isaiah saw. This is how he visualizes it. And a shoot shall come out from the stock of Jesse, and a branch shall bloom from his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and insight, a spirit of counsel and valor, a spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, his very breath in the fear of the Lord. And not by what his eyes shall he see, sorry, and not by what, not by what his eyes see shall he judge, and not by what his ears hear shall he render verdict. And he shall judge the poor in justice and render right verdict for the lowly of the land. And he shall strike the land with the rod of his mouth and with the breath from his lips put the wicked to death. And justice shall be the belt round his waist, faithfulness the belt round his loins. And the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard lie down with the kid. And a calf and the lion shall feed together. A little lad leading them. And the cow and the bear shall graze together with their young. Together their young shall lie. And the lion, like cattle, eat hay. And an infant shall play by the viper's hole. And on an adder's den a babe shall put his hand. They shall do no evil, nor act ruinously in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, as waters cover the sea. So these are 
famous lines, um, and they may be familiar to many of us. Isaiah paints in kaleidoscopic imagery, and um, that's how he that's how he helps us to understand and feel what it feels like when God makes His home among us. God makes His home within us, and like any kaleidoscopic image, it's not so much the little details that matter, like. How can a lion eat hay? Um, that's not really what Isaiah is concerned with. He's more trying to make impressions as a whole. This kind of literature, this prophetic literature, doesn't so much aim for our brain as it aims for our heart, it aims for our gut. So this is what Isaiah wants us to know, I think. First, he wants, us, he wants to remind his, his readers that God always makes good on his promises. Even though the kingdom of Israel was in total disarray at this time, um, Isaiah saw that from David's severely damaged family tree, which uh, at that stage looked more like a cut-down stump, a, um, a descendant would be born who would not only embody all of Israel's hope for wise and effective leadership, but he would massively exceed it. If Israel's situation was summed up in the image of a burnt out stump. Ours is probably summed up uh, with the Collins Dictionary word of the year, permacrisis, meaning an extended period of instability and insecurity, especially resulting from a series of catastrophic events. Apparently the other contender from 2022 was splooting which is the act of lying flat on the stomach with the legs stretched out. <laughs> it must be a UK thing, because I've never heard that one. But they seem to go hand in hand, I think. Permacrisis and splooting. Um, so, so I think we know, you know, we know what ineffective leadership looks like. We, we see it all the time. We don't need to go far to see ineffective leadership. And, um, you know, I'm hesitant to sound pessimistic because I think people are trying, you know. But, you know, we can all recognize this is the case, you know. Even though our leaders are, whether we think they are or not, trying to do their best. Um, I'm, yeah, I, I'm, I'm essentially pessimistic, you know, when it really comes down to it. Um, that, that these people will, will ever be able to get out of the permacrisis. Um, so I think, I think you know, as Christians, we should be praying for our leaders. I'm talking about government. I'm talking about education. I'm talking about community leaders. We shouldn't be, we shouldn't be pessimistic to the point of retreat, but we should also not be putting our hope in, in, in worldly um, progress. And I think this is what, what Isaiah is alerting us to. Um, we're not looking for just slightly better leaders. We're not looking for slightly better programs. We're not looking for slightly better approaches to fixing the problems of the world. We need a leader who's totally given over to the Spirit of God. This is the second big truth, I think, Isaiah is communicating in this passage. So the vision of the leader that we need um, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and insight, a spirit of counsel and valor, a spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, his very breath in the fear of the Lord. 
And not by what his eyes see shall he judge, and not by what his ears hear shall he render verdict. And he shall judge the poor in justice, and render right verdict for the lowly of the land. And he shall strike the land with the rod of his mouth, with the breath from his lips put the wicked to death. And justice shall be the belt round his waist, faithfulness the belt round his loins. Maranatha? Yeah. Amen. We need this kind of leader. Because um, when Jesus moves into the neighborhood, when God makes his home among us and within us, things change. Things change in surprising ways. And, you know, this is how Isaiah sees it. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard lie down with the kid. The calf and the lion shall feed together. Um, these images, um, yeah, Together they, their young shall lie, and the lion like cattle eat hay, and an infant shall play by a viper's hole. And on an adder's den a babe shall put his hand. They shall do no evil nor act ruinously in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Maranatha. I've been thinking about this idea a lot. You know, I've been thinking about this idea of, of home, like I've been sort of getting at. Um, because I think home is a, a sight, and it's also a scale that we can understand. It's a sight that, and a scale that, that we can get our heads around and our hearts around. We've all got memories of home. We can all think when we think about home. We can think about places. We can think about smells. We can think about textures of home. Um, even if our own home life has been difficult. There's something about our experience of home and our longing for home, which I think connects us in this passage. And um, as, a, as a kid, I used to love going over to friends' houses and having sleepovers and seeing how their family did things, you know, and like, um, yeah, their rhythms and their routines, seeing the books that were on their shelves and um, seeing the... Um, you know, slouching around on their furniture and drinking out of their cups and just getting a sense of someone else's home. That 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 um, that sense of home, I think, is a really deep part of us. And I think that's what Isaiah is trying to tap into, the sense of what happens when God comes home. Yesterday, um, oops, yesterday Sarah and I went um, to a market at a, an urban co-housing community in Greyland called Co-House. Um, it was very bourgeois and it was, a, it was a good time but they were having a market so we went for a visit. And um, according to the website, Co-House is a community of people designing and financing our own 20-unit housing development in Greyland, Auckland. Our vision is to build affordable housing that uses smart design and innovative technology to create a community where it's easy to live comfortably while minimizing resource use. It's a really cool place. Um, as you can see, it's like the whole, the whole um, housing is developed around this big, lush um, veggie garden. There's, um, they, they have shared facilities, like they share um, laundry and that kind of stuff. And they have shared e-bikes and they have shared e-vehicles and um, it's sort of like this little utopian project, and it was really fascinating walking around there on Saturday, just kind of getting a sense of it. Um, yeah, um, 
But it was funny, as I was walking around in this place, this really lush place, I just, maybe because I was pre- knew that I was preaching tomorrow, I just couldn't get this image from Isaiah out of my head of the wolf and the, um, the wolf and the lamb, you know, the wolf dwelling with the lamb and a baby playing by a viper's nest. I just couldn't get it out of my mind when I was in this lovely place, thinking about, well, um, you know, on the one hand, co-house feels very pleasant, very comfortable, very nice, you know. Um, it's like a little island of calm in the middle of this busy city. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that my longing for home goes a lot deeper than what's on offer here, you know. Because um, despite the the sort of appearance of this this beautiful place and this perfect community, um, I just know that this place is full of broken people like me. It's just full of ordinary people. No matter how nice you make it look, no matter how well you organize things, it's still made of people. And um, yeah, it's, it's, we've probably all experienced communities like this, really beautiful on the outside, and then when we really start mining into it, we realize, oh, it's just, it's just people. It's just people again, doing people things. So our longing for home won't really ever be satisfied, even if we get the nicest sort of digs. And that might be like uh, the furthest thing you'd want to live in. I don't know, <laughs> some kind of hippie commune. But whatever it is, our longing for home won't be satisfied on this, in, in any human project. So in that sense, I, I felt a little like this gloomy guy, St. Augustine, um, wandering around um, what, yeah, he wrote a book called The City of God, where he compares the city of God and the city of men. So um, Augustine was a, a church father during the Roman Roman period, um, and he witnessed the destruction of Rome. He witnessed the, the sacking of Rome by the Vandals and the Visigoths and these northern German tribes that swept through Rome and destroyed all of the institutions and, and burnt down the city. And many people at that time believed that God had abandoned them, that, that God had like left them and they were having their own exile moment. And that's why he wrote this book, The City of God. And he wrote it to remind his church, to remind the people that, that the Roman Empire, with all its grand institutions and achievements, all its beauty, all of its order, all of its valor and justice, was still a human project. And all those virtues that Rome boasted in um, were ultimately superficial, ultimately hollow. Um, the city of men could never provide what Augustine was was trying to um, remind his his people about. Um, yeah, they needed to get a taste for and a hunger for a home where justice, peace, knowledge, valor are truly laid in deep foundations in Christ. Is what he said. God does not raise up citadels of stone and marble for us. He raises up citadels of the Holy Spirit for us, citadels of love which could never collapse, which will forever stand in glory when this world has been reduced to ashes. Rome has collapsed, and your hearts are outraged by this. Rome was built by men like yourself. Since when did you believe that men had the power to build things that are eternal? No, he's not holding back, is he? Um, so, but yeah, like I said, I think I hinted at earlier, I think it would be dangerous for us to go too far down this, down this path, to be completely like rejecting the world, to be washing our hands of things. It's not an excuse to stop working for justice, 
or to stop striving to make the world a better place. These things are vital. These things are part of our, our Christian heritage. They're part of our calling. But we also know that true justice, true faithfulness, true community comes from God alone. And I think Isaiah helps us to see this really clearly with his image. Because we can never reform a wolf to become a vegetarian. There's nothing we can do to make a wolf become a vegetarian. There's nothing we can do to make a snake not attack a, a child. So the thing is, what Isaiah is saying is, this is bigger than anything that we could do. Yeah. Hence our prayer. Maranatha, come Lord. So, just to recap. This is where we find ourselves today, Advent 2022. 2022 years we've been doing Advent. And this is another Advent, one that's never been before. We're living in a world gone wrong and permacrisis, looking for a leader in a city where many sleep rough, where many have, don't have enough, where many um, live lonely lives. In a city where the wolf is after the lamb every day. And yet we wait in joyful expectation for the homecoming of Jesus. When he'll move into the neighborhood again. And put things to right. So we neither turn away from the suffering of the world. And we neither fall into proud um, self, um, self-making um, projects. We never fall into utopian thinking. Thinking. So this is the difficult tension of Advent. How to hold that together. If there's something for you to think about, um, that's all I have to say. Um, but we are going to now... Um, we've been praying, haven't we? We've been praying, come Lord Jesus. And like I said, we're praying for the second coming when we pray that. So why don't we stand and let's invite Jesus to come again. Let's keep inviting him to come. Because when he comes, he changes things.